Father, we thank you for coffee and for all the other good things that you give us. We thank you for the opportunity that you provide for us one day in seven to be able to set aside our, t- our regular labors, our regular uh, recreations, indeed to be able to focus uh, not just on resting our bodies physically, but on celebrating the spiritual rest that you have given us in Jesus. One day when he returns, this will become our uh, continual physical rest. But for now, Father, you have delivered us and you have given us this time to be able to revel in who you are and in your character and the things that you have done. This is exactly what we're looking at in today's catechism, and we pray, Lord, that we would be able to understand, give us that clarity of thought to be able to read and to understand the things that are put before us so that we can have a greater understanding, greater uh, appreciation for who you are, but that all this will move us ultimately, Father, for a greater love for you as well. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we continue on through the shorter catechism. Again, you'll have that on your uh, Trinity hymnal if you don't have it on your phone or uh, your own paper copy. Trinity hymnal will be somewhere around page 870, I think. That's what we've been told. So as we've been working our way through the catechism, we got to the part where it showed that God is the one who decrees all things. He issues a decree, everything is under that decree. You remember that we said it was his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will, so that everything that God does is determined by himself. And that question that dealt with an eternal decree pointed out that he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. And then we saw the next question, which explained that how does God execute his decrees, and we saw that he executes them in the acts of creation and the acts of providence. Creation is just what it sounds like. God is making of everything, and we saw that God made all things out of nothing. He did it by the very word of his power, right? And then we saw also last week the special creation of human beings and all that that entailed. So there's the creating, but there's also providence, which is, to put it in a cruder form, the maintaining of that which God has created. And it is now that we shift away from creation to providence, a word that no longer gets used. You know, you look in the old days, you read a lot of stuff from the time of the War of Independence, and you, you'll see language like, providence has smiled on us, and just a way of saying God has smiled on us in his, his ordering of our everyday affairs. So that's what we're going to see here, is how does God maintain the creation that he has created? So let's take a look at question 11. Again, um, I direct you to either your own catechism or to uh, 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 the Trinity hymnal. Would somebody read question 11 and the, an- the corresponding answer? All right, thank you so much, Matt. So we're beginning to get a feel for the way the catechism writers work. They break everything up into chunks. Every one of these phrases, these different clauses has something that we want to examine. So before we jump in fully, let's just kind of do a a, a brief survey. So what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are, and now he's going to explain, his most holy, wise, and powerful. So those are three adjectives describing what's going to come next. What is God's works of providence? It is his preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So if you say, what is, what is that providence? Preserving and governing. But it's done in a way that is most holy, most wise, and most powerful. That most holy does not simply apply to the first adjective. Holy applies to all three. And I want to briefly look at that. I won't spend too much time on, on uh, saying that everything that God does is most holy, most wise, most powerful. But we just want to go ahead and be sure that we can see some scriptural warrants. So as we've done before, let's take a look at some scripture passages. I'm going to ask for you all to look up, oh, let's look up um, four different passages. Let's start with Psalm 145, verse 17. Psalm 145, verse 17. If somebody will turn to it and just hold it for a moment while somebody else goes to Isaiah 28, 29. Isaiah 28, 29. 
So have Psalm 145, 17, Isaiah 28, 29. Perhaps we can get some, uh, you know what, let's hold off there for a moment. And let's take a look at Psalm 145. Who's got that one? Dive right on in if you've got it in front of you. Psalm 145.17. Takers? All right. So the righteous part is not something we're not looking at today, but the Lord in everything he does is righteous and he is holy in all his works. So there is nothing that God does that is not holy. So there's his most holy. Let's look at the most wise. Isaiah 28.29. Isaiah 28.29. All right, wonderful and counsel um, is another way of saying wise. Excellent in his wisdom. Uh, let's take a look at the fact that it's claiming that God powerfully preserves and governs all his creatures. Let's look at Psalm 103, 19. Psalm 103, 19. And actually, we're going to use that one again, so you'll want to probably keep your finger in that. Psalm 103, 19. Whoever gets it, if you're there, that means you're to read it. Aha. Uh-huh. So the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. Um, how about, why don't we just, no, you know, we're going to hang on to this one. Uh, let's look at Hebrews 1.3, but just think about that. Let's hang on to that here and we'll get to it in just a moment. So what we're looking at here then, uh, hopefully that just gives you some biblical warrant for the things that we've been talking about. But I want to go ahead and begin to unpack it. So everything breaks down then. I'm going to erase this from last week. So God's work of providence breaks down into two major areas. The first one is his preserving... all his creatures. And the second one is his governing. Let's take a look at the preserving. That word today, if we were to be writing the catechism today, we might use, because preserve means sort of like just kind of um, freezing, right? You take some preserves and you put them in a jar, or you make your preserves out of that. You know, just kind of like it, it makes it seem like they've been um, frozen or in some way, um, uh, uh, you know, it's not dynamic, it's very passive. A better word today we might say is sustaining, sustaining. The idea behind this is that God is the one who sustains everything. He preserves us, he keeps us, that's language from, from Scripture, um, most people today would say, well, no, the thing that's sustaining everything is the laws of nature, right? And, and we can study. Uh, I think I've told you about um, this wonderful book by Nancy Piercy. Her, her name up here, Piercy, is spelled with a E at the end. Anything, by the way, you can grab from Nancy Piercy is worth reading. Her book, Total Truth, is probably the best textbook, if you want to call it a textbook, on how to do apologetics in modern day life. But anyway, Nancy Piercy wrote a book called The Soul of Science, in which she talks about how science as we understand it today has its foundation in, well, it's, it's, it's Christian origins. There could be no science without the understanding of, uh, that comes to us in scripture. Maybe that's a story for another day. But the point is simply this. We can study the laws of nature. They really are, things that are regular, and so, you know, you can come up with an equation for gravitational attraction, and it applies here, it applies on the moon, it applies on the other side of the solar system, and then across all the galaxies. But that's not there, as we saw under creation. Just by happenstance, God himself put all those things into place. And so what we see then is a very, what the catechism is doing for us is it's saying that even these laws depend ultimately on God. 
and God could at any moment withdraw his sustaining that. So one of the views, uh, you may have uh, heard of it, that was uh, very prevalent just a few centuries ago, and I think in practice many people still hold to it today, is a view known as deism. Deism, have you heard that? Anybody know what deism is? Can you summarize it in just a couple of sentences? What is the main proposition or main uh, assertion of deism? That's exactly it, Phil. God did create. There really is a God. But he kind of wound up the world and then, as you said, let it go. He kind of set it on its own. And so God does not take an active affair. And there's one sense of deism in which he's completely absent. All he did was create. Most people hold a kind of deism that says that God created all things. He set those laws in motion. And then he basically steps back, but he will occasionally peer in and see what the you know, stupid mortals are doing, and, and he has a few things that he wants to accomplish, so he comes in there and he just boop, you know, goes in there and messes with the timeline, that kind of thing. And that is the view that a lot of people in practice hold and don't think of the fact that God is actually involved in the warp and woof of everything. As we saw in that earlier question, God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. And here what we're seeing is that even the very existence of the creation is dependent on God. So we haven't moved on to his governing the actions. Just the very fact that we exist still depends on God. God could not simply wind the world up and back away because if if he did that, the world would poof out of existence. Let's take a look at that passage I was telling you that we're going to hold on to. Let's look at Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 1.3, would somebody look that up and read that for us? All right, and so this is um, the author of Hebrews starting, starting the very, you know, his, his letter by pointing out, he's not talking about God generically, he's talking about Jesus, who is God. And he points out that through Jesus, and Jesus himself is, as we saw in creation when we looked at it, all three persons of the Trinity are involved that were involved in creation. And so here he points out that it is Christ who not only created, but even now sustains the very universe. He upholds it by the word of his power. If God were to withdraw that sustenance, that preserving, to use the catechism language, as I said a moment ago, the world would simply blink out of existence. It wouldn't be that there would be, you know, Uh, uh, disasters and all that, we would simply cease to exist. Time would cease to exist. Space would cease to exist. Life would cease to exist. So the point is that even those laws of nature and everything that give a regularity to our lives, which we need, all those are being sustained by God's power. Does that make sense? You see how that's coming? Uh, there's one other passage I'm just going to go ahead and read. Uh, this is Paul speaking on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, in, um, in, uh, in uh, uh, Athens. And as he's talking to these philosopher types, he says that God is not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Everything that we do. I mean, the very people who raise an angry fist and deny the existence of God are only able to do that because he enables them to be alive. And, and, and it's not just that he gives them the air and he gives them their food. He does all that. And there's passages in Scripture that shows that, that his sun and his rain comes down on both the good and the, uh, the righteous and the unrighteous alike. But the very fact that our very existence is just being upheld by him. That's an amazing thing when you, when you think about it. It means that when, if you would have been living in uh, uh, Israel in the time of, um, of Christ, you might have gone to the Agora, the marketplace, right? There in Nazareth or Capernaum or whatever. Even, uh, even in the years before his ministry, you might have been there, like I said, at Nazareth. And you're walking down the, you know, the, the crowded uh, uh, marketplace and you'd bump into this guy who's Joseph's son. And uh, as you bumped into him, at that very moment, that person who then turned around and said, excuse me, because they were all Canadian, excuse me, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, and, you know, so they apologized for about three minutes. In that whole period of time, that man was at that very moment upholding the very fabric of the universe. That's an amazing thing to think about. 
But that's what we're learning here when we, when we look at that. It's interesting, our neighbors next door in the mosque don't believe in providence and don't believe um, in the laws of nature. Now, you know, if you went and asked some of them, they would say, of course, gravity and all that. But if you look at their actual philosophies and so on, uh, you know, there's been this claim that, uh, oh, the, you know, Arabic, uh, uh, th- there was a strong Arabic science and all this other stuff before that there was modern science and so on. Which is one of the interesting things about uh, Muslim viewpoint is that there is no, like for example, no law of gravity. It is that when you pick up, you know, a pencil and you drop it, and it falls, and you pick it up again and it falls. Now, we go and we say, well, I can measure that and what. They're saying that Allah, which, and by the way, Allah is just the Arabic word for God. I say that so they not get hung up. Their view of God is incorrect. But they're using the word Allah is not necessarily incorrect. I say that because if you were an Arabic Christian, when you pray, you would pray to Allah. And that does not mean that they're praying to the Arabic conception of God. They are praying to a biblical view of God. I just say that to defend our Arab brothers and sisters, because I've actually literally have heard Christians say, you pray to Allah, so you pray to a demon God. Well, when I pray in Spanish and I pray to Dios, uh, you know, so I'm sorry I'm not using the word God, you know, if you're French and you say letanal and all that, it's just the words that are used in those languages. But when our neighbors pray to Allah and they ask him to do things, he has to do everything individually one by one. There is no actual... Uh, a pattern that is set. So Allah has to will that pencil dropping each and every time. The reason that science as we know it today could start with, uh, with Christianity as she, as Nancy Percy says in her book, The Soul of Science, is because we know that God ordained actual laws that would be the same each and every time that he sustains the universe so that those laws are in effect, so that gives us regularity so that we can plan our day, so that we can sit there and say at six something the sun's gonna come up and at you know, seven-ish or whatever it's gonna go down and we can predict all that. That's the basis for the scientific method. There would be no basis without understanding that regularity has been imposed by God. Uh, Acts 17, 27 through 28. We can throw a further a few more in Nehemiah 9, 6. It says, you, O God, preserve them all. And that's where the catechism guys got their question, uh, got their uh, wording from, preserve. We can also look at Colossians 1, 17. By him, that is by Jesus, all things consist. So I think it's important to understand then that God is not a, a, an absentee God. He is involved in every level, not like the Muslim God where he has to literally will, I'm going to drop this pencil at such a rate. God has determined that these laws will happen. But he does preserve the universe. He sustains it actively. So we can say a whole lot more, but uh, as usual, this is just a survey, so we want to get going. Now we get to governing. He doesn't just sustain or preserve, but he also governs. And we already dealt a little bit about this uh, with this when we dealt with the question on God foreordaining whatsoever comes to pass. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the uh, initial aspect of showing that God does indeed govern every last part of it. We've looked at things like, you know, for want of a nail, uh, the shoe was lost for want of a shoe, the horse was lost for want of the horse, the rider was lost for want of the rider, uh, the battle was lost for want of the battle, the war was lost for want of the war, kingdom was lost. Just showing that big events do depend on little things. Um, that's, you know, uh, for example, um, I was just reading about um, Henry I, and uh, I'm not going to get into all of it because I haven't finished reading it, so I don't know everything enough to, uh, to get to it, but uh, sometime in the, uh, the 12th century in England, uh, you had, as they called it, the flower of Anglo-Norman um, uh, nobility on a boat along with the, uh, the prince who was to inherit the, uh, the, the throne. And that little boat went down. And when that boat went down and took down some of the other nobles and so on, there was a scramble that went on for the longest time. But they say it's the, the real Game of Thrones and back and forth between who was going to take the throne and who was going to have it. And 
you know, all sorts of uh, intrigue and uh, the French got involved and the Scottish got involved and this house versus that house and all, just because one little boat went down. And that's the way those things happen. Little things affect big things. And it doesn't have to be national like this was. It can be in our own lives. Uh, you all heard about the, the tragic accident yesterday in the Dallas uh, Executive Airport at the um, Wings Over Dallas show. Um, absolutely tragic. For those six men who were killed, everything in their families' lives changed just because of one event. Everything will be different from this point on. My father died when I was nine years old. Everything in the trajectory of our lives changed because of that. So God ordains all these little things. It's, uh, we've already dealt with this idea that, well, God just steps in and moves around the big chess pieces, but the rest is left to us, and we've already seen that that's not the case. So what I want to do here is um, just deal with what it means that he governs everything. Uh, the fact that he's able to direct and control every aspect means that we can have confidence, means that we don't have to be afraid of things. Um, Timothy at the uh, um, uh, uh, Evening of the Arts. Wait, was it Timothy? Who did uh, Psalm 46? That was Jacob. Thank you. Uh, Timothy did James 1. You did. I thought it was great, by the way, how many folks did memory, you know, scripture memorization things. I thought that was great. But, um, Jacob, I could probably ask you, but I won't put you on the spot. You know, the first two verses, right, of that psalm, of Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, uh, we will not be afraid, even though the earth be moved and though the mountains uh, be carried away into the sea. You know, obviously, um, um, dramatic language, even though there's upheaval all around us. Now, there is upheaval all around us. Right? Maybe not in terms of the, literally the oceans, because there are no oceans in Texas, or at least not here in North Texas, one of these days. But, um, okay, that was a little jab at climate change. But, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, we're not going to see him any time, um, at least not until another ice age. But the point is, there is upheaval all around us. Um, uh, there's political upheaval, there is civil upheaval, there's moral upheaval, and what this tells us is even in the midst of all that, God's in control. He is our very present help in this time of trouble. And we can uh, have that hope because we know he is, in fact, controlling all these different things. So let's take a look at what it is that God actually controls. And that's what I want to spend some time here. Like I said, we already made the case for that under the question of, uh, you know, uh, of God's eternal, uh, God's eternal decree and he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. So you can... Uh, refer back to that if you need that level of detail, but what does he control? Some of these we've already talked about. Let me, uh, I'm going to erase Nancy Piercy's name. First area of control is he controls all things in nature. Controls all the things in nature. So, for example, in Matthew 5.45, which I had already read, uh, God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust, or the righteous and the unrighteous, depending on your translation. So, he has control over those elements. Psalm 104, verse 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and the grass of the field for the service of man that he may bring forth food out of the earth. That was Psalm 104.14. How about Job 37, verse 10? By the breath of God, frost is given. Skip a little, and he says, um, uh, by watering he, uh, he wears the thick cloud. Uh, it is turned around about his counsels so that they may do whatsoever he commands them upon the face of the earth. Uh, that's Job 37, 10, and verse 12. I skipped from one to the other. Um, so it's very clear in all this is that the things that we might think, well, that just happened by chance or that happened mechanically by a law, that kind of thing, what we really see is that God has complete control over nature, okay? I think most of us can follow that one. Uh, he also has control of nations, entire nations. Let's put that up there as well. 
And again, this is where somebody might still be deistic to some extent and say, well, yeah, God steps in and handles the really big things. Um, But it is very clear that he deals with those very big things. So Daniel 4.25 says, the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men. So he rules over those kingdoms. Uh, also in Daniel chapter 2, 21, he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets them up. So very, very clear that God is the one who ordains things. Of course, uh, Romans 13 also tells us that God has ordained governments and so on. Romans 13, 1 through 7. So the fact that we just had an election and certain people won, or at least their ballots, <laughs> okay, I won't say anymore. Um, Certain people have been declared victorious over others. That is not by chance or not even solely because uh, you pulled the lever or some ballots magically appeared, however the case may be. But all that happened ultimately under the guidance of God. It was his providence. Uh, That old uh, adage, you know, the wheel of human history turns because God turns it the way that he will. Um, Acts 17, uh, 17 verse 26 also Paul in the Areopagus says that it is the Lord who has determined the times uh, that were appointed beforehand and it is he who rules the bounds and sets the bounds of the habitation of men of human beings so he controls even those all these big scale events are under his control third thing we see is that he controls and now here's where it starts getting personal He controls every single individual. Even here, you can try to minimize that and say, well, he enters into portions of my life. We'll deal with that in just a moment. But let's look at the fact that he does exercise complete control. Right, 1 Samuel 2, verses 6 through 8. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings people low and he lifts them up. He raises the poor out of the dunghill. He sets them among princes, and he makes them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. So basically, using the idea of creation, that he rules every different aspect of men's lives. He's the one who brings them down. He's the one who brings them up. He's the one who gives them life. He's the one who takes that life away, and he can do that because he's the one who created, who set the world, as it were, on its pillars. That is 1 Samuel 2, 6 through 8. Jesus talks about every hair on your head is numbered, and so on. So every aspect of your individual life is also under control. Now again, somebody might say, well, that means that these things happen to me, right? So I can't control the fact that I'm going to walk out and, you know, get hit by a cement truck I had no control over over that. But the one thing God can't control are my actions. Uh But that's number four. (laughs) Or or here, D. He not just controls the individual, but he controls their actions, according to what we just read. And let me put it this way. All their free actions. What? Yes, he does. We've looked a little bit at this again. You can look at Proverbs 16.1. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Ooh. Even what's going on in your heart, which will eventually come out with what you speak, is controlled by God. For Philippians uh, 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work to his good pleasure, right? The second one, Philippians 2.13, Philippians 2.13, the first one was Proverbs 16.1. So when you determine in your own heart what you're going to say or do, you have to understand that God's also determining, right? And one last one here, Psalm 76.10, surely the... (coughs) Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, uh, the, uh, that which remains of wrath, you shall restrain. Um, that's a little more uh, detailed, more, that's more so than what we want to get into here. But even in our anger, even in those things which are um, 
uh, not good, God has control, which raises up an objection. Wait a minute. Does that mean that God is responsible for evil? Now, we dealt with this a little bit before, so um, uh, we were going to get to it here, but I think, Phil, you were the one who probably asked the question. Was it last week or a couple of weeks ago? I can't remember when it was, but you asked that question about, oh, yeah, we were talking about creation, and God made everything good, and and you're saying, how does evil enter into the world? And what we pointed out is evil is not a thing, a positive thing that enters into the world. You can't find evil, hold it, pick it up, look at it. Evil is simply the absence of doing what God commands. Uh, it's basically the, the absence of doing what's good. So there isn't in that respect evil entering into the world. Uh, but where you, have, of course, were going is where did God uh, or, uh, if, if everything was good, why did we even have the desire to do something then and contrary? So when we began to answer that, you know, we began to get into the whole issue of what it means to be free and moral agents, and that in order for God to have a relationship with us, um, God needs us to be free and moral, to be able to choose between the good and the evil. Otherwise, we would be simply automaton, and then we use those examples of what it would be like with us in our personal relationships. Yeah, and, and, and our brothers who say things like that are trying very hard to protect free will because they have a mistaken ident- uh, notion uh, that when God predetermines something, then you lose your free will. And uh, maybe we can spend our, the remainder of our time, which is just about 10 minutes, dealing with that. So l- let me see if I can deal with that. Let me just make a couple of more points here, and then I want to get to that. Let's establish some things of what this means. The scripture tells us that God is not the author of sin, right? So, so we know that. Uh, somehow he is able to ordain not just the big things, but the little things. Uh, you know, we, and, and, and in the process of doing, still is not responsible for sin. He says we're responsible for sin. Let's hold on to that. Let's see if we can try to get a handle on it. I'm going to tell you right now, we'll never be able to fully comprehend the fullness of it, but I think we can get a much better handle than what is routinely put out there. Because what you routinely hear is either you, you, you break those two apart, just like these guys are doing, in order to protect God or to protect our free will, they divorce those two. Um, so if you're acting freely, then God has nothing to do with it. Or God has everything to do with it, but then you lose your free will. And both of those... Uh, I believe to be mistaken. So the scripture does assert that God does more than just move the chess pieces around uh, and, and outmaneuver us because he's, he's smarter and bigger and all that other stuff. No, he actually determines all our actions, but he does so in a way that we are still responsible for what we do and he's not the author of sin. So I just want to throw that out there. Um, I might be able to get to that if we have time. I was going to end with basically uh, talking about how this all gives us great confidence once we see that God's in control of all things. You know, Romans eight twenty eight: all things work together for good for those that love God who are called according to his purpose and many other passages um, that just show that God is um, behind everything so that we can actually have confidence in the midst of those difficult mo- moments. You know, when you find something like... Um, Psalm 91 uh, that says a thousand shall fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand but it shall not come near to you Uh, you know language like that Um, the reason you can have confidence that the Lord protects and guides us it's not promising that no evil no bad things will happen to us but that he will be with us every step of the way the reason we can have confidence is because of what this catechism question is telling us Um, if God did not have control over those things if God only controlled the big things, remember the little things could upset his plans and then he loses control of the big things and you couldn't have confidence. You couldn't know for sure that Jesus would return, for example. Some, something might just upset that. So, But let's go back and spend the time that we have remaining, if that's all right, if this that we've explained so far is good. And let's try and see if we can get a handle on this idea that your free will is not uh, removed because God determines all things. Now, you know, we're a Presbyterian church. That means we teach Reformed theology, the theology that came out of the Reformation. Uh, one of the big things that was recaptured, I say recaptured, didn't start, you know, in 1517, 
but that was recaptured was the idea that God is sovereign. That's really what we're saying in this. God is sovereign, is, or, is ordering all things, is preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions, uh, shows that he is sovereign. That was one of the things that was recaptured during the Reformation. Uh, Presbyterians then get accused of saying, well, you're all about predestination. Now, some of you have been in this church for a long, long time. Some of you have been here for some time, and some of you are relatively new. And you'll notice that we don't spend all day talking about predestination. What do we do- talk about almost, uh, not almost, every single week, though? The gospel and grace. That's always there. Predestination comes alongside and has a role to play in that. And if we, when we get to studying that, then we'll go ahead and, and deal with that at that time. But explain it. Uh, it has a place. John Calvin, uh, who sometimes, because he taught predestination, is sometimes presented quite incorrectly by people who've never read him uh, as being some cold-hearted, dour, you know, uh, uh, theologian. Um, if you look at his Institutes of the Christian, uh, uh, Institutes of the Christian uh, Theology, which has to do um, basically a, a theological textbook that has stood the test of time and is still used today, um, predestination doesn't come until, uh, four volumes doesn't come until volume three. So it's not what he leads with, it's not even what he begins to get into, it comes not quite near the end, but more than halfway through uh, the book. Still, it's an important part of what it is that we believe. But what we believe is not this idea that when you exercise your free will, God is no longer in control, or that when God exercises his sovereign control, that you lose free will. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which summarizes our theology, has a whole chapter on free will, because you sometimes hear that. Oh, Calvinists don't believe in free will. And that's probably the, the biggest of the caricatures uh, that, uh, that's out there. Uh, and then you look at chapter nine of the confession, if we had time we'd read it in detail, but it actually explains that you actually do have free will. So, I know we've talked about this before, but let's go ahead and review some of this. And you've heard me say before that there's not a, when we talk about free will, what are we talking about? We're talking about making choices, right? And when you make choices, you make choices that are moral and you make choices that, uh, that don't have a moral component to them. Although, Anything that inherently has a moral choice, uh, that has a moral component to it, like do I take life or do I not take life, you know, those things are sometimes easier. But even things that don't have a moral component, do, do I, you know, drink grapefruit juice or do I have orange juice this morning? Um, there could be moral things that fuel your decision, right? But why is that? Because behind every choice, you always choose, and you've heard me say this before, you've never made a choice you didn't want to make, right? Uh, I don't know, do we need to reestablish that uh, again? Um, you, as a, as a free creature, always choose according to your wants, to your desires, to your inclinations. In other words, to put it, um, um, to summarize it, is you choose according to your nature. Your nature determines your choice. And you've heard me use the example. You know, you've got a dog, you've got a cat, right? The cat wants to chase canaries. The cat wants to climb trees. The cat does not want to bury a bone. The cat does not want to bark and chase after cars. The dog does because these are behaviors that correspond to his nature but not to the nature of the cat. Now, if you can take the cat and put it into Calvin and Hobbes' box of transmogrification and transmogrify it into a dog, you change its nature it has a new set of inclinations, wants and desires. Now it does want to chase after cars. It does want to bury bones because it has a new nature. And so it is with you. You have a nature, a human nature, now a fallen human nature, and you choose according to your wants, inclinations, and desires. So you, you've never made a choice that you did not want. And um, we've talked about the, uh, the famous example from R.C. Sproul. You know, somebody comes up to you and they rob you. They put a gun in your side, so... Uh, they say your money and your life, and so you hand them over your wallet, and later you're recounting to your friends over at the bar what happened, and you tell them, you know, I didn't want to give them my money, you know, and, but, you know, I had to. Well, you didn't have to. You didn't have to. You were not compelled to give him your money. You chose to give him your money. What we really mean to say in those moments is given the, cert- the set of circumstances that were set before me, giving up my money or dying, 
I don't particularly like those circumstances, but I chose the one that I most wanted at that moment. And at that moment, I wanted to live more than I wanted to uh, hang on to my money. Right? Can you see that? So when we complain and we say, I didn't want to, what we're really meaning is, I don't particularly care for the circumstances that were given to me. That's what we're really saying. But you still freely chose. No one compelled you to do anything. Somebody can grab you, somebody can shackle you, and you're still not compelled to do something, right? You get the the idea. Now, people can make things very unpleasant for you so that you choose to comply. Sadly, that's what things like torture, you know, that's what basically that does. It's to make things so uncomfortable for you that you choose to comply, but you don't technically have to. You see where we're coming from. So you always choose according to your wants, inclinations, and desires. And when we get to talking about how we are regenerated, how when we change, we choose Christ, do Calvinists believe that we choose Christ? Of course, absolutely. That's why the gospel has to go forward and we put the choice before people. What we say is that you cannot choose Christ unless you are enabled to. Because what happens is that every single one of us in our fallen nature do not want to choose the good. Which inherently means we don't want to choose the greatest good, which is Christ. Until we are regenerated, until we are born again. Jesus says in John 3, 3, that you cannot enter the kingdom unless you are born again. And then John 3, 5, you cannot even see the kingdom let alone enter it, unless you're born again. You don't even know that you're, you need it. You go around you know, your life basically oblivious to that fact. And some of you who were converted uh, later in life when you can think about it, realize that, that transformation that happens. So what happens is when you are regenerated, when the Spirit makes you into a new creation, right? 2 Corinthians five seventeen. if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Right? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So something new has happened. There's a a transmogrification, uh, right, to use Sam Waterston's uh, language from his comic Calvin and Hobbes, which, by the way, is based on Calvin is named after John Calvin. Hobbes is named after, who was that one? Thomas, (laughs) Thomas Hobbes, the atheist philosopher who were as far apart as they could be one from the other. But um, when that transmogrification, when that regeneration occurs, you have a new set of inclinations, wants, and desires, and you want to choose Christ, and so you do. But it's still a free choice. Now, what did God do? He changed your nature. So when let's go back to the more mundane things: choosing the orange juice or the grapefruit juice for breakfast. You freely chose. But God made you the way you are. He determined those aspects. You had nothing to do with that. And because of that, he gave you the nature so that you did choose the orange juice or the grapefruit juice or whatever it was that you chose. And you chose freely. Does that make sense? You can see how he can both, by creating you or recreating you, as the case may be, He gives you your wants and your inclinations and your desires because he gives you your nature. And then you freely choose according to that nature, but it is what God had intended all along. Does that make sense? So, unfortunately, we are right past our time. Let me stop there because that usually brings up uh, a few questions. (laughs) And let's see if we can can, uh, field those and then we'll move on. Any questions or comments about any of this? That God, in his providence, preserves and governs in the most holy, wise, and powerful way all his creatures and all their actions. Let me start, first I'll go with Bob, then we'll come to Matt. Because, yeah, we used verse um, 25 a little earlier, but got to go back and get that. Okay, so he's chastising uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar... um, does not recognize that he is in his position because God foreordains all things and has placed them there, right? So you're looking at verse, which one again? Tell me, 17? 
So the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision of the word of the holy ones to the end, uh, to the end of the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Yeah, um, so I think what it's just saying here is you're not in that position, Nebuchadnezzar, because you inherently are better, superior, faster, smarter, wiser than anyone else. I, God, choose. And I could take the lowliest, those whose status. Uh, it's not saying that all those he places are the lowliest in terms of how we determine status and so on, but he's saying, in the end, it, it's up to me, and there's nothing in you inherently. That's what he, the lesson he was trying to drive home for uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar took pride, and of course, at the end of all this, he walked away and said, the God of Daniel is the true God, and he's the one who put me in my place, and he's the one who took me down and you know, turned me into a babbling fool, um, and, and, and that kind of thing. So um, my guess is that's what it means. It does not mean that God routinely knocks off the high and powerful and puts in you know, citizen kings, that kind of thing. That's what Hebrews 1.3, I think, is trying to um, uh, show, is that he is actively involved in sustaining, that he has to uphold every single particle in the universe. He upholds its very existence and everything that's going. Now, when you talk about how active, one of the dangers that we get into here is we say that there's nothing hard for God, right? But there's also nothing easy for God. Those are relative terms that make sense to us. For God, there just simply is. It's inherent in his very name, I am. You know, I am what? I am. So there's nothing hard for God. There's nothing easy for God. He simply will. So he doesn't have to be, just got to really uphold everything all at once. I'm so He's not spinning 20 plates and having to work at it. He just simply does. And so he's involved in every last aspect, every last molecule, every last particle, keeping it going and determining what's going to happen next without any effort, if that makes sense. So how active is he? As active as possible. And yet, not in the sense that he's having to, you know, frenzy and keep up with everything. I, I don't know if that helps answer that. I'm also saying it's part of our nature. Um, th- there could be no existence where God steps away and says, you know, I'm going to take Tuesday off because I've just had it, right? If God, from the moment that God created, he had to sustain that creation. And again, he's not sustaining that as in, okay, how long can I do this? <laughs> I'm on my third eon. You know, he just simply wills it. But if he stopped willing that we be, we would just simply no longer be. It wouldn't be that the world would begin to crash down and, oh, things are going bad and run for the exit. We would just simply blink out of existence. I know it's a little, it's, it's a little mind-blowing, but okay, maybe this is the last one. Did I see a hand in the back? Yeah, so I, I would say, when did he determine for those locusts? Before he even created. Before he even created, he had already determined for those locusts to come. And when we, discuss, when we discussed creation and providence the first time when we compared it to us, you know, God's eternal decree is like a blueprint for us to create the house, and then creating is us going out and building the house, and then uh, providence is maintaining the house. We, we pointed out limitations, and those, uh, those limitations to that parallel is the fact that I, when I did to, choose to do that, there was a time when I did not know I was going to build a house. And I had to stop and think about building the house, and then I had to put in that's absent for God because as we saw it's, it's eternal even. His decree is eternal. It is, that's why it's his eternal decree. So the, the, the beauty of this is that we no longer get hung up on whether the locust coming was a directly supernatural event. Like if I had a camera, would I have been looking at a field, seeing nothing, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, ex nihilo, there was a, a, a cloud of locusts. Could have been. More than likely was not. More than likely was locusts, life cycles, you know, all that. And at that moment, that large plague, oh, but that's not supernatural. Oh, that, you know, you've, you've removed the glory from God. No, this just points out there's no difference. There's absolutely no difference. God had determined every one of those events. 
and their deliverance, or their wrath, depends on which end you were, whether you were being delivered or whether you were the one taking the judgment, but that had all been God's purpose, and he chose to use those normal mediate events, right? When, when uh, King Herod stands up and, oh, I'm great, I'm wonderful, and people start saying, oh, he's like a god, he's like a god, and he gets struck down. Did he get struck down directly? You know, the gods have been saying, Tzz. or did he cause, you know, the guy to have a stroke or something, which seems very likely, you know, that may be in something like that. That doesn't remove God's glory because once we understand this, we realize that that was as much under his control. So we do see events. We're not taking away from miracles. There are things. The resurrection is clearly the biggest example of something that is not part of that regular order of things. Uh, the, other, the others are things that would happen. And by the way, how do we deal with that? In Reformed theology, we have two words, ordinary providence, extraordinary providence. God ordaining all things. A resurrection from the dead, a turning water into wine, extraordinary providence. Walking on water, right? Locusts arriving at just the right time, ordinary providence, but still as much in control, as much as God's interaction. So what we realize is that that red light that kept you from getting to work on time was God's predetermined will, and he had already had that. You know, so that is as much his work as the parting of the Red Sea. Okay, okay we really do have to stop. Oh, yeah, uh, we're way past our time. You can go on and on about this, but um, yeah, once you start getting your, he- your, your, your head around all this, it changes your perspective on everything. Uh, you start realizing, I am responsible. You can't blame God for anything like that when you make a bad choice. It's you, you're responsible for it. And yet at the same time, you can take great comfort in knowing that everything that happens, even the bad, as Hebrews 12 tells us, it can be, is ultimately used uh, for our discipline. And Romans 5 says that it uses to, suffering produces character, character produces perseverance, perseverance, I'm sorry, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, character produces hope, and that hope does not disappoint us. Story for another day, but just something to meditate on. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get ready for worship. Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you are the God who not only creates, but the God who preserves and governs all your creatures and all their actions. And that means, Father, that nothing, nothing is happening to us outside of your sovereign control. We're so thankful that Revelation chapters 4 and 5 show us that Jesus is the only person who is worthy to take the scroll. And that scroll is the scroll of your eternal decree, your plan for all of human history, indeed all of cosmic history as well, and that he alone has taken it and he alone is able to sit on the throne and he alone is unfolding history in perfect accord to your eternal decree so that nothing that happens outside uh, happens to us is outside of your sovereign control. And we're so thankful that everything you do is always for our good and for his glory. Help us, Father, to be able to wrap our heads around that and to accept these wonderful truths that we have read and, and learned about here. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.